Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starking. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Uh, today on Inside Whitehall, we're looking at a part of Parliament that the public get to play a direct role in, the Petitions Committee. This is a function of Parliament that perhaps has the most obvious direct public engagement and receives thousands, even hundreds of thousands at times, of uh, signatures from members of the public every week. So what is the commission, uh, Petitions Committee and what does it do? Well, we have the chair of the Petitions Committee itself, Kat Smith, MP, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, Kat was first elected to Parliament for Lancaster and Fleetwood in 2015. She served as Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities and Shadow Minister for Voter Engagement and Youth Affairs and, and served under both Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. And before being elected as MP, she worked for a national social work organisation and was trustee for a local charity supporting victims of domestic violence. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So look, one question we always like to ask everyone is what got you into politics? Why politics? Um, I suppose my... I was kind of always involved in politics, but I just didn't realise it. And I think that's true for a lot of people, actually. So um, basically, if you feel passionate about anything um, and have strong opinions about how the world or the country should be, then you are political. Um, so for me, I was probably um, politicised uh, through the church. So I'm a Christian. Um, I'd probably describe my ideology as being a Christian socialist. Mm. And for me, it was through involvement in the Methodist uh, youth churches and campaigns around global debt and fair trade, social justice, um, that probably politicised me. But I would say at that point, I wouldn't have identified with a political party. It was more kind of engagement on the issues. Um, and then later, when I was a student, um, I had a friend of mine who was a member of the Labour Party, and we went out for some beers, and I came home with a Labour Party membership card. And well, that's how it all started. <laughs> a, few, a few beers on a night out, there we go. I know, I do really need a better story, but that's that's the truth. <laughs> but did you ever, I mean, the issues thing's interesting because I think lots of MPs have particular issues they're interested in. And it doesn't always necessarily naturally fit into a party. Did you Did you ever think, was it an obvious thing to join the Labour Party once you'd kind of been introduced to them? I mean, I was probably quite aware of the Labour Party and I certainly voted Labour, but I didn't actually consider joining a political party. And what I would say is that joining political parties is a bit weird. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a niche <laughs> sport, isn't it? Let's be honest. Like most niche. people, even if they identify with a political party, taking that next step into membership is, um, yeah, a bit weird. It's true, because I think that if you talk to normal <laughs> so people, true. if you talk to normal people, often they'll say, that they'll talk about issues yeah. and they'll say, well, I think the Tories are right on this, but Labour are right on that. And actually, I agree with the Lib Dems on this. And then, then when they get close to election, they'll figure out who they vote. I don't know if that's accepted enough in West. We, I yeah. think sometimes we forget that most people don't think of themselves as Labour Tory. I mean, I, I actually would disagree, James, if I can. I, I, yeah, because certainly I find, so, I mean, Jonathan and I probably both do this thing where we spend our weekends knocking on doors of members of the public and suspectingly mm. having the conflicts whilst they get a politician on the doorstep. <laughs> and... um. You know, I, I do see from the conversations I have on the doorstep is that, yeah, people, a lot of people aren't necessarily committed to one political party. They have firm views on certain issues. But I actually think that a lot of voters are not absolutely nailed on 100% certain for a political party. Mm. I mean, at any given point in time, they might be more inclined to vote for one party or mm. another. Um, but I actually think that um, a lot of politicians probably do get it. I mean, certainly the politicians are not doors. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, it's someone like I represent, first time they've ever had a Conservative MP in their history. I think what 
intrigues me there is how many people on maybe a single issue in that election of 2019 or an individual, a personality that they liked or disliked. And then beyond that, sort of, I think we're seeing that play out with the Conservative Party at this moment in time. You know, what what do they stand for? What's their message? Who are they trying to appeal to in order to, in, you know, get to or remain in government, if possible, after the next election versus Labour with a, a new leader, different strategy, you know, but we're trying to sort of regather a broader coalition of voters than maybe they elsewise had gathered in 2019. The, I mean, the issues thing is pertinent to today because that is exactly what the petitions committee does, right? Is look at these, is, is where people are super passionate mm. about specific well, issues. We, we should actually, it was only recently Kat actually was elected. So we should probably just give That's a little true. congratulations to Kat congratulations. For, for getting elected. You, and, uh, and Kat, I don't know why, allowed me to sign her nomination papers to say that I would endorse her. And I was great, glad to see that that didn't. And despite that, and despite, <laughs> despite that set, early setback, despite that early setback, I mean, out of interest, Kat, once all the, obviously for people who are listening, you've had to not just get votes from the Labour Party, you've had to get votes from across all the MPs in Parliament. Yeah, so chairs of all the select committees, including the Petitions Committee, are elected by all MPs. So, um, you know, when there is a lot of the chairs that are delegated to a political party, so, so this chair had to be held by a Labour MP, but that Labour MP, and there was three of us that went for it had to then win support from across the House of Commons. And of course, the biggest party block is the Conservative Party. So there you had three Labour politicians um, vying for votes from Conservative MPs. And I, I do think that that's one of the kind of very quirky and little understood parts of the yeah. elections for select committee chairs, particularly when you're in opposition, is that you are appealing to a party predominantly that is not your own because your party is not going to be giving you enough votes in itself to get you over the line. So how do you think you'll fare, Jonathan, in opposition when you when you want to be on a committee? Is this a, for, is this a forecast? Are you making a forecast, James, on the pod? This is a big deal. I you're... would be confident to make a forecast. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than willing to take a bet on the pod right now if you want to do it. How do you think you'll fare if you're trying to get on a committee and you need Labour votes to get on there? Do you know what's quite interesting? I obviously do predictions. <laughs> I obviously ran for the chair of the Education Select Committee, and I, to my much surprise, got over fifty votes, which I was delighted with. So I thought <laughs> I'd get maybe five. So, um, I, yeah, I accept I probably maybe only had one Labour person, and Kat kindly signed my nomination papers, and then uh, took a load of grief for it, uh, which is very. I was playing the long game. I watched your nomination for positions committee. There we go. So you played the long game, but <laughs> I, I think in opposition it'd be interesting because look, as a, the on the Conservative benches, we would look at. For example, rightly or wrongly, but there is obviously an element of politics and game playing and all these things. People go, "Oh, is are the any of these contenders likely to cause the government any significant headaches? Do we think that they have access to people that could cause problems like you know media contacts? Do they even potentially disagree with their own leader themselves on things, which means we could drive a wedge? So those things will be debated on all sides of the house when it comes to electing chairs. So seeing that the prime minister and I are probably the best of buddies most of the time at this stage. Um, if I ran for committee now, I'd like to think I'd have a, a much better shot. One, one quick question, which I don't know the answer to is, so the diff you have to have a chair of a, a person of a certain party for various chats. So when, when someone said done, when is it decided and why that X committee has a Labour or Conservative chair? I don't know. Actually know the it's divided up after, the, uh, after a general election, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, by, I think it's the usual channels, which is Westminster speak for the Whips offices, okay. right? Oh, so there's a kind of agreement post-election and that runs yeah, for five so years. Yeah, so it is proportionate. Um, yeah. I assume it's proportionate based on the 2019 result. I don't, I mean, could they rejig it? I don't know. That's a really good question. That bit I'm not sure of. But yeah, from what I, I'm with Kat, my understanding is that there's there's a private conversation between 
the, the chief whips of all parties and a, an agreement is formed essentially to yes yeah, so third party always try and get you know scottish affairs don't they yes <laughs> shock horror so so we've got an idea how, how how it's selected so could you tell us a bit more about the petitions committee itself like what's it there for what's its central function how often does it meet so it's clearly the best of all the select committees Obviously. because it's the one that really does try and engage the public. Mm. So um, I suppose some people, if you're being critical, would just say it schedules the debates on the public petitions. But I think it could be so much more than that because it can be that bridge, that link uh, between Parliament, you know, Westminster MPs like Jonathan and I, and and the public. And as someone who was engaged on political issues, um, you know, as a teenager, frankly, you know, what were my channels into politics? So I'm trying to create those opportunities. So when I was a teenager, uh, me and my friend Rebecca, uh, she dressed as a banana, I didn't. Uh, and we went out and campaigned and handed out leaflets on our main shopping street in Barrow and Furness uh, for campaigning for fair trade products in shops, you know. And, um, you know, what other avenues did we have as teenagers to try and influence politics mm. other than dressing up as a banana and handing out leaflets? Rebecca, um, if there's a photo out there, we're more than happy to share on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and whereas now I suppose like a teenager who was really interested in a political issue can go up you know and start an e-petition right and I think that's a really good way to have that direct link to say well if you care passionately about this you can start a petition you can rope in a few of your friends and then tell them to tell their friends you can promote it online and if you get 10,000 signatures you get a response from the government to the issue that you care passionately about and if you get 100,000 signatures, it can be considered for debate um, by MPs in Parliament. And I would have loved that opportunity as a young, politically interested activist, not necessarily at that point, necessarily a member of a political party, so not always terribly engaged in what was going on with MPs. Um, but this is a really good way for people who feel passionately about those issues, which is most people, to be able to really engage with Westminster. That's brilliant as far as I'm concerned because we're always told, aren't we, that Westminster's out of touch mm. and we're not taking up the issues that people care about. This is an amazing tool that I wish more people took part in. Absolutely. Look, I'm, I'm actually, for declaring my interest, I'm a member of the Petitions Committee, so Kat is my chair. And what so I, you're on your best behaviour. <laughs> I'm on my best behaviour in committee <laughs> meetings. And what I think what I've really enjoyed about it is that some of these very big topics we read about in the news, you get the Secretary of State making a statement in the House, you may get an urgent question granted from the opposition or from a backbench member of parliament, but you know, it's a question. What's great about this is you will end up with a debate, you know, 90 minutes in Westminster Hall, which is obviously a different chamber in the House, um, a much more, I would say, collegiate kind of atmosphere in there compared to the Commons in most cases as well. And we can have those frank conversations, it allows backbenchers to actually really go on the record and What's great about the petitions committee is as well, you get um, uh, an update from the committee regarding how many people have signed the petition from your particular constituency. So you can figure out compared to other places, are you high up mm -hmm. and it's a therefore really urgent issue or is it quite low down? And, you know, you will get people lobby literally write to us as MPs saying, we want you to attend this debate and you have to justify if you can't go. If you do go, obviously you send your transcript to what you've said. I mean, you said about the 10,000. How have you found that so far in terms of interacting with government? Is there, are they quite good at responding? Some or? departments, it's just so variable, Jonathan. So, you know, clearly some departments are absolutely on it. They get a petition in their department that's going to be reaching 10,000 signatures and they're kind of almost poised, ready with a response and really keen to engage. And other departments are not. And why do you think that is? Is it just, do you think Whitehall doesn't take this seriously enough? Most 
of why hold does. We, I think there are some problem departments, and I don't know whether or not I should name and shame. Which are they? <laughs> because I am actually the, 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 the department that's in my mind that's the worst offender has just had a new Secretary of State. So I am an optimist, and I'm going to give that new Secretary of State chance to fix it. Health, but uh, if that, well, there's been quite a few changes. It's going to take a while to whittle through them. Or home office, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, if they continue to be um, not engaging with the process, I will raise Mary Hell. And obviously, I said there that we get debates scheduled in Westminster Hall. Can debates be scheduled in the Commons Chamber? Yeah, I mean, that certainly did happen during COVID. And it is about that negotiation with the Leader of the House. So um, I did meet with the Leader of the House yesterday. Um, and I hope I'm not breaching any confidences to say that, you know, she is very engaged with the process of Petitions Committee. And she's quite keen to ensure um, that we have what we need as a committee to be able to have you know, time for MPs to debate the issues that the public care passionately about. And no doubt she'll be under pressure from our own constituents and members mm. of the public who who actually think really like the process you know it's quite a new process it's uh you know it's one of the newest uh, select committees it's uh, you know a fantastic opportunity but i think people have embraced it and it's nice to see westminster embrace change and doesn't always the, on the engagement front when you say there's good and bad engagement from departments mm. without without naming the department what constitutes very very good engagement with the committee and very very bad engagement what what do you what do you mean by that so really really good would be um uh, there is a petition and it's on an issue and uh the department sees it coming and as soon as it hits that 10,000 threshold you know it feels like the committee has got the response from the department almost instantly so we don't need to go chasing for it um and it the, the response acknowledges the issues that have been raised in the petition because sometimes departments um, when they're being a bit naughty, uh, sometimes don't always address all the issues in a petition and mm. they try and uh, play word salad to try and like confidle us all. Um, but the really good responses are the ones that are in clear English that people can understand, not Westminster jargon, um, and really address the concerns of the members of the public. Mm. And Bad's example would be the ones that just do not even send that. They don't send anything at all? Yeah, so we have one department that just appears to be not sending anything at all. And that must be, you know, again, not naming them, that must be a conscious decision because I assume all departments are broadly structured in the same way. Mm. They'll have a parliamentary focused team. You know, when I was in the Home Office in DEFRA, we have teams that are telling us what's going on in Parliament. So there must be a, dis I think it's fair to say there must be someone making a decision not to do that. It may just be that it's, the department is very busy and um, just, you know, it never reaches the top of the to-do list. Mm. Must me being generous. I, I like I like to try and be generous with folk and yeah. let's give people second chances. So I'm I'm hoping that the change at the top in that department is going to solicit some changes. And maybe next time we speak, I'll be able to tell you that all departments are engaging fully with the petitions process and giving us really prompt and detailed responses to mm. petitions. So obviously we've had the 10,000. When we get to the 100,000, obviously it comes before the committee. Mm. What happens at committee about this 100,000? What's the process for the debate? being eventually brought to Westminster Hall or to the House of Commons? So when a petition hits 100,000, Jonathan, um, as chair of the committee, I will you know, make sure it's in the papers for our meeting. And then we sit down along with some of the colleagues. It's not just Jonathan and I. Um, along with some That'd of the be colleagues. great fun, though. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Chaos <laughs> would reign. Um, and we have some amazing colleagues, don't we, on the committee. And um, if there is someone on the committee who's got a really strong interest in that particular issue, they can pick that up as their their debate topic it doesn't have to be the chair that sort of leads on it so um i'm conscious that this people could be listening to at any point but yesterday but this could have been a week ago by the time this goes out 
And Marsha de Cordova, who's one of our members of the committee, led for us in Westminster Hall on a debate around healthcare students, uh, which was something that had hit the 100,000 mark. And then she was the one opening up that debate in Westminster Hall. Um, and we've got our colleague, of course, Nick Fletcher, who is picking up on the Excel Bully Dogs petition. So when people have got like an interest in a in an area, it you know every member of the committee can have that opportunity to present it to our colleagues in Westminster Hall to open the debate, but also importantly, make sure that the uh, petitioners, the people that started the petition, uh, that their voices are heard as well. So there's quite a lot of engagement between the members of the committee. So if Jonathan was leading for us on a debate to rename Stoke-on-Trent, Woke-on-Trent. Um, you know, he would get to meet the petitioners from Woke-on-Trent to, uh, to see what their arguments were. He would get a chance to have like maybe a Zoom call or a face-to-face and you know, make sure that when he spoke and introduced this motion, this petition, sorry, um, that he would be like really including their voices in what's been said in Parliament. I'm sure you'd be keen to do that as well. I'll be keen to have that debate, but I wouldn't be supporting the petitioners uh, in that instance. The two you just mentioned, they're they're big issues. They're they're, you know health and exile bully dogs, both in the news, both people. What so what? How many people have signed those two particular ones or ballpark? If you you didn't tell me to bring the figures with me, but it's over a hundred thousand. So so both of both of those will be over a hundred thousand. Absolutely, and and generally, you know, if something's big in the news, it will reach the threshold. Really. Um, petitions that are reaching the threshold, um, you know, are on a lot of them at the minute on Gaza, Israel, Middle East right. politics. Um, so a lot of those petitions, the ones that are currently tipping over the the hundred thousand mark, because it's so topical. And I think when yeah. something's topical, it gets shared more. Yeah. Um, if you're engaged on that topic, you are probably going to take actions like write to your MP or sign a petition. Um, so generally, if something is on the top story of the news for more than a week, it's a good chance it's going to. It's also a good opportunity, you know, if you think about it, if you've got your MP maybe who's sitting on the fence and not really giving a public opinion, particularly, you know, Israel, Gaza, Middle East, there'll be a lot of tension across the house for how people express their feelings whilst also trying to maintain what they think is the appropriate line. For the public, this is an opportunity to say, this is your opportunity to put it out there for us to be able to judge whether or not we think your judgment, your opinion is that in keeping with what we think is the majority of your constituents and Kat's right like one of the things I've loved about it is meeting the petitioners and hearing their story but also the experts so you know I, I like to whenever I've led a petition make sure I've heard from the petitioners first their views I always ask for them and I always deliberately make sure my opening three minutes is solely basically repeating what they've told me mm-hmm. making it clear this is their words this is what they want in fact I send my speech over to them then I do I try and look for key stakeholders so, you know, if I, I did one on Woodcock uh, in a shooting season, so I spoke to the shooting, the sort of the pro shooting lobby uh, of, of game birds. And then I spoke to sort of the environmentalist lobby and again, try to put their view. And then I like to, at the end, just say, at the end, here's my view. And sometimes I can just be like, I don't really have an opinion on this personally. I've, I found it interesting on both sides. Sometimes I go, actually, this is my view. And I've led debates where I've disagreed with the petition, but I like to think I've tried, but you know, I've, I've been there with, Gary Neville on a Zoom call talking about football regulator. You know, quite a weird oh, really? moment to be sat on a Zoom chatting to Gary Neville about football. Yeah. It is a shameless name drop, absolutely. He, he described himself as the talent earlier. Just so. I, did. <laughs> I can't believe that was a joke, as you know, and I can't believe that's now on record. It's not a denial, is it? <laughs> right. So we're going to, well, James, do you want to ask anything else? Do you ask anything? I'll let you go, James. So on the, when you say meet the petitioners, you mean 
So that, that's the people, obviously not going to be 100,000 people. That's the people that set up the petition. That would be a challenge to me, under that. Yeah, so it's the people that set up the petition. Um, uh, although you also, you know, you can get the data from your own constituency, you know, so you know that, you know, X hundred people in your patch, you know, were also signing it. And oh, you can do that. Some of them will have then emailed you because when you sign an e-petition, it says, thanks for signing this e-petition, you can email your MP to let them know you've signed it. So occasionally we'll open up our inboxes and there'll be an email from Joe Blog saying, I've just signed the petition on, you know, abolish school uniform and can you please take part in the debate so then you know that that constituent has you know signed it and is engaged in it so you could actually go back to them as well if that petition comes forward i'm gonna bagsy that one cat just so yeah yeah well, i tried to do an education one for you jonathan and is there is there a like most popular is there a topic so because obviously some of the topics we've touched on are all you know people are going to be are going to have quite clear and passionate views about israel gaza mm. recently we talked about XL bully dogs, which was huge in the news for a number of days. BBC license fees being one when the over 75s fees. had to pick them. Lots up. of animal ones. I think probably a lot of animal, animal ones. ones. I was going to say, I worked in DEFRA. Oh, yeah. Is, I, was at, I was at DEFRA when we had the animal sentience issue, uh, which is, I think, one of, one, of the, one of the most online engaged stories in yes. UK history. And it was, it was quite, I mean, it took a few days almost for Westminster to pick it up, but you could see it. On, we are a nation of animal lovers, aren't we? Are we are very much we so. We genuinely really are. It's 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 incredible and a bit humbling, really. Sometimes we yeah. appreciate the strength of feeling people have. Because um, I mean, not not to get into too much politics, politics. But obviously, I think the I think there was the fur ban been dropped. I mean, you've, they've got mm. some of these issues that I would imagine these are the kinds of things that you get hundreds of thousands of signatures yeah. for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of, I suppose, it's interesting to see like how much you know. How, on the really large ones, so in department on animals, um, um, what's the word? Sentience. Sentience. On those issues, like we absolutely were paying attention right up to the Secretary of State and it was, you know, we, we obviously had to take action over it and factor it into our policy development. Do you think on those large ones they're, they're factored in enough? That, is it understood uh, that they represent that strength of public opinion? I think it probably is actually. Um, Jonathan, what do you think? I think, yeah, yeah. I think I, I see, I think you get quite good numbers. I think whenever there's an animal debate, a normally quite packed Westminster Hall. Oh, role. yeah, the public galleries usually both. And the public and it, galleries I think as well. The striking thing with animal things is not only is it widely felt, so you see a high number of people signing, but I think it's quite deeply felt as well for mm -hmm. a lot of the people that are involved. This is their number one issue. This is something they feel incredibly strongly about. I generally think like if I look in my inbox, putting aside obviously some of the very big stuff from Brexit to Ukraine to Israel, Gaza, if I look at the consistent campaign style emails that come in, animal welfare, mm. without a doubt, is the one that I spend a lot of my time reading over when my team are putting the letter together for me to reply back to constituents. That is, it is, it is huge. It is amazing. And, and I the think commitment, because I, I don't know if you see this in your inbox, Jonathan, but certainly in mine, if somebody has emailed me when I was first selected in 2015 about badger calls, I know that it, they are still going to be emailing me in 2023 yeah. about the latest animal rights, uh, our animal welfare type issues. And they actually, do tend to be very That's an interesting consistent. point. If we've had, for example, a debate on banning the fur trade mm -hmm. in Westminster Hall two years ago, can that is there a time limit on which no debate can be brought forward or can it happen in a year's time again if another petition gets 100,000? Um, there's no reason why it couldn't happen again. There's no sort of limit on it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if that's what so people the can keep wants, repeating, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, if the public still feels strongly about it and they still want MPs to be debating it and they start a fresh petition and start again and get to the 100,000 mark, round we go again. And, and that's what I think that's quite good, though. I mean, you might think it's a bit like repetitive. 
But if the public still feels strongly that we have not sufficiently debated it, that they're still signing petitions, then who are we to say that we've already done this? Mm. Well, the government do it. I think you, you'll be on your third crime bill this year, won't you? So, <laughs> the, the, if the government... third piece of legislation for stopping the boats. Yeah, we're, yeah. it's a very pro-recycling government. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good for the David environment. Cameron's back. So yeah. you know that's how that's how pro-recycling it's all we are. Good for the environment. And so. What can happen from these? So we, we, you know, we can have a big strength of opinion and it goes into, you know, go to debate. How, how much, you know, for the public who wants to, who signed these things, what change can they affect in Parliament? Like, what's the impact? Is it, is the central impact kind of raising the issue for the longer term to then maybe at one point kind of be considered by ministers? Can it have a more immediate impact? Um, I'd say that the, the impact is probably like keeping that issue top of politicians mind that that's kind of a very easy one it's another arrow in the collection of, we have for our those political campaigners you know so it's something else that can be done to keep a political issue live and MPs uh, engaged on it but it can put pressure on government as well so if the government has say dropped a bill around animal welfare mm. and the public were deeply unhappy about it should we say theoretically obviously um then, you know, if there was suddenly a string of petitions, that really, really puts the feet to the fire of the government on making sure that they fix that broken promise. And it gives MPs actually a, an opportunity to call government out yeah. as well. And that's, you know, if you're From a backbench MP all on all sides, sides yeah. it's an opportunity to say, hang on, you said you were going to do this. The reason we're debating this petition again is because you're not doing it and you said you would. I generally think these debates are really interesting because look, when people see politics, it's normally Prime Minister's questions, a hostile environment, people pitting against each other. Especially you, Jonathan. Especially me, <laughs> as we as, as as we discussed in season one of our Inside Whitehall. Um, we, we're yet to do PMQs and questions. That's good. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that, yeah. Um, uh, who am I to lecture? Um, but what I love about this is, and I think what the public probably don't see enough of is actually there's normally where we see a lot of agreement on the issue and it's actually just small, very technical kind of differences where people actually in the de chamber debate themselves are willing to go, oh, on this maybe I can see and we can, I can agree with you on that, but I still think on then. You actually sometimes see live negotiations between the back benches, which sends a signal to the minister, there is a passage here to do something if you want to that will probably get broad consensus. And even though it won't be 100% of what anyone wants, it, it's better than what it currently is. And I think, I think for me, when I look at the best petitions, I think it's about either those really big issues where a government has dropped a bill or there's something really topical and you want to call your MP out. The smart ones are, can I find something that's maybe a small technical change that would be very hard for a minister to justify not doing? Now, I appreciate that does mean delving into legislation, understanding how that would be done. But those small technical changes, if you do enough of them, eventually you've made quite a big change. And I think they're the ones that, the public will get the most success on because how can a minister justify not having what we call statutory instruments, which are done in committee rooms rather than the chamber of the floor or delegated legislations, again, done in the committee rooms rather than in the chamber of the floor. These things can be done very quickly by ministers. In some cases, just a minister signing something in. So that for me is where the power lies with the public. So, because I think what I'm hearing is that if you're running a campaign and you're directing at Westminster, this should be a key part. Oh you yeah. Should, you should be looking at If it. you are a campaign organization, yeah, you Absolutely. should be engaged in this process. So, because we've got a live example. So, myself and Jonathan uh, are, have been helping a group of people on the Safe Sick Pay campaign to improve statutory sick pay. It's, I think, at least two of them have been adopted by the Labour Party. My understanding is the Conservative Party hunt is not going to do it. 
So mm-hmm. that's not going to happen anytime soon. So it seems to me that that, I mean, I'll, I'll ask both of you, that seems like the perfect kind of thing which would have, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people on statutory sick pay. I'm sure there's even more people that would support improvements to it. It's not getting awareness in Westminster. So that would be something that you should look at. I would love to see that come up for debate. Um, obviously, if it does come up for debate, I reckon Jonathan will be quick off the mark to try and take a lead on it from the committee. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's one of those great ones where you've actually got MPs on both sides espousing that they want to see this happen, mm. which means you'd have a really good debate. Mm. And actually, it's a hot seat for the minister then because they're going to get it from behind them as much as they're getting it from in front of them as well. And the minister's then got to justify to everyone. You know, we've got what well, Robert Buckland, Pretty mm-hmm. Patel backing the campaign, as well as Angela Rayner having now adopted. That's a um, hell of a coalition. That is a hell of a coalition. Do not mess with that coalition. That is, that is, that is a power team right there. And I think that's that's what I would say to any organisation that does tune in, like campaigning organisation, but also to the student politics, which and sometimes gets sort of a talk down or disregarded in. Uh, the Westminster bubble, you know, it uses an insult, to be quite frank, uh, to certain people. But actually, as a former teacher, that's the best thing they can do. And if you only get to 10,000, as Kat says, you're still going to get a response from the government. They're going to have to justify their position and to you. So you have to get to the 100,000 to have a debate. Yeah. It couldn't mm-hmm. happen before that. You could get under, uh, if you were close, okay. I think there is probably some wriggle room that if, if it was recognised that it was a widely felt issue and it was not being debated before or something, there is some flexibility within the committee. And that's, that is why the committee exists. So it's yes. not it's not quite the hard and fast rule. So if you were two signatures short, I yeah. like to think that the committee would... Through would use some flexibility. And there. just briefly, the, 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 so the Westminster Hall debate, lots of people uh, listening, even interested in politics, might not have seen one. They might oh, not know great. How, do they, how do they function. So it's set up much like Parliament. And so w- explain to us, let's say we had a debate on sick pay or you have one on XL bullies. How, how would that play out and t- what's the setup and who takes So I guess if you're thinking about the House of Commons Chamber, you've got two rows of benches that face each other. And I like to say like, Sometimes Jonathan and I just lob bricks at each other, verbal bricks, right? And it is quite confrontational. Yeah. Um, whereas in Westminster Hall, first of all, the room is horseshoe shaped. So it's a bit more like um, maybe other parliaments that you might see from a, uh, elsewhere. A bit like a lecture theatre. Yeah. So rather than benches, there's sort of desks. And, and for somehow that sort of changes the atmosphere yeah. a little Massive. bit. And I think there is a lot more, there's not an obvious divide as to where the government sits and where the opposition sits, although the government generally sits on the sort of left-hand side as you go in kind of thing, and we tend to sit on the right-hand side. Yeah, the doorkeeper's kind of directors, but I remember the first time I walked in there, I sat on what was doing the Labour side, and someone tapped me on the shoulder and went, we went to sit over there. So you mean that you instinctively went to the right? Jonathan and I could sit next to each other in that space, couldn't we? Because there's not like a point where one side ends and the other side begins, you know, you know, you could be sat next to someone from, you know, across the aisle, yeah. so to speak, in the main chamber, but in Westminster, you could sit right next to them. And that's really powerful. And then I just think that it sort of takes the temperature out of yeah. it a little bit. Um, you tend to get slightly longer to speak. So rather than talking in sound bites and just trying to get your clip, I think people are more interested in trying to sort of flesh out the arguments, find the nuance, but also find the common ground. So Jonathan and I, won't agree on everything but there will be things that Jonathan and I do agree on um it's hard to believe I know but um <laughs> Westminster Hall would be where we could like really sort of meet in the middle and mm. find actually we both think this and this is a really reasonable thing to do um and that that puts the minister under a lot of pressure and also you know 
look, the members of the public can come in via the normal entrances and they can go up to the public viewing gallery of the Commons, but the Westminster Hall is literally off, just off the Westminster Hall chamber, is just off Westminster Hall itself. So it's normally the first place you come into once you've gone through the security. There is a public gallery. There's no screen in front of it. There's actually just some thin rope, two rows, and there's not loads of chairs, but the public can just come in and sit. And, you know, they're, and they say they're really good. And you'll get on the Monday, the petitions committees debates normally, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, normally uh, the speaker's office have had applications every week. Certain departments do certain weeks in which they're available. And then colleagues either get a 90 minute, a 60 minutes or a 30 minute debate on issue. 30 minutes normally you're hyper local um, i love them but they're I've great using them yeah. they are they're major tools because if you've got something in your constituency that is so it's more than a question yeah you're not going to get it all out in like departmental questions but yeah oh i think they're a great opportunity to like re and then you get to bring in like the you know your constituents views as well like there are so many different ways of the public having their voice heard in Westminster. And we've not even, we've talked about e-petitions loads, but Jonathan, we should probably talk about, you know, the petitions MPs present at the end of the day. Um, because so it, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I regularly submit them. Yeah. So only, <laughs> my understanding is a kind of hard copy petition, only an yeah. MP can bring that in. So yeah, I mean, basically before e-petitions, this was the only way that the public petition could be heard in Parliament. So, it, but it still exists. It didn't get abolished when e-petitions came about. Um, so, I mean, the biggest one I've ever presented, I think, was WASPI. So, Women yeah. for State Pension Wasp, yeah. uh, Equality were um, huge issue. Huge issue. You know, lots of women felt very, and men actually as well, felt very, very strongly about this. And um, they went and they collected the petitions. This is a campaign organization, but they collected it in a format that they could then hand it on to their MPs. And the MPs were, you know, there was queues basically at the end of the day to present these petitions. Wow. Um, and I thought that was a really powerful campaign. It is great. You know, it doesn't matter. And with those ones, it doesn't matter how many signatures you've got. Mm. Um, my office, when I've submitted, I think I've done three or four now, I've submitted it to the petitions committee. They check the wording to make sure it's within keeping of the house. You book a slot. Um, these petitions are submitted at the end of the day, right before the adjournment debate. Um, and you literally, as an MP, get normally max two minutes to speak, to basically explain, summarize, the uh, petition, then you have to do the formal bowing of heads from the uh, the line all the way to the the to where the speaker sits. It's read out by the clerk of the house. You put it in the bag, literally behind the speaker's chair, and then you'll get a res response from the minister. And like Kat says on those ones, you know, I've submitted ones of like two hundred, which is about a particular road that desperately needs funding mm. to be resurfaced. So one I'll be presenting, I'm hoping, right before we break up, which uh, for Christmas, which is got so far five and a half thousand signatures, which is about uh, changing the law related to uh, Charlotte Sky, six-year-old who lost her life due to a drink driver um, hitting her and killing her, and how we can change blood testing uh, in that respect to make sure that victims get answers quicker. So it, it is still a powerful tool. I actually bizarrely think because e-petitions have come in, and a lot of MPs who have come in since e-petitions existed, I think petitions at the end of the day are heavily underutilized by members of parliament because you're submitting it, you're still getting to speak in the chamber. Ultimately, you'll therefore get press coverage in your local paper and you can show constituents what you're doing to try and push the government or maybe use the government as an avenue to put pressure on your local council to do something that you think is really important for your local area. They seem like a great tool, on the, as we said, on the campaigning front, we're doing the mental health stuff as well with the mental health nurses. Um, it, they, I think when you're doing one of these things, having done the sick pay one and the mental health nurses one, you are constantly on the lookout to how how can you get your message across mm. to 
to the government, basically, to show that it is an important issue, that people do care about it. There's, you know, a whole range of things that, you know, on the mental health one that we've got the backing of the Royal College of Nursing. So it's, you know, there's expertise. It's not a kind of a, a random idea. And this seems like something that anybody in a campaign should be looking at this whole petitions process, both the E and with the MPs. Absolutely. And the best thing about, you know, using the old fashioned, if for want of a better word, petition, the old paper petition, is that you don't need to hit the 10,000 to get yeah. a government response. So the last one I presented right. a few weeks ago, Oh, you'll love this, Jonathan, as a, as a teacher. So one of my local primary schools, LL St. John's Primary School in Goldgate, they, uh, the village is quite old, the roads are quite narrow, and they had a fire alarm at their school, and thankfully it was a false alarm, but the fire engine could not get to the school because of the way that the cars were parked down the really narrow road. So had it been a real fire, wow. it would have been pretty bad, disastrous. Yeah. Um so the children obviously were quite upset by this. The teachers were very concerned by this as well, obviously. And when I was speaking to the teacher, you know, I thought, well, let's empower these children. You know, they're not old enough to vote. They won't be old enough to vote anytime soon. It's a primary school. But what they can do is, you know, they went around the village and they went down, you know, all the narrow streets. And, you know, a lot of the residents felt strongly about this because it wasn't just a school that wouldn't have been able to be accessed. It was houses as well. Um, and they collected petitions from their neighbours and they they have become politicised through this incident. And I presented their petition on the floor of the House of Commons. And That's cool. that it was, you know, a real way of saying to these children, something happened, it shouldn't have happened. And, you know, there is a huge parking issues. And whilst it's not going to be the government that fixes it, it puts huge pressure on our county council to then really sort of address this issue, which I have been banging on about for years. Um, but suddenly I've got a primary school full of kids behind me. Mm. Like, don't mess with me. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I love that because I think that's why this process is so important. And this is why campaigners of big national campaign organizations all the way down to your local primary school should understand this is a tool. And MPs, if it, if it particularly if a petition is driven by young people, I would be gobsmacked. I'd be appalled, in fact, if any MP wasn't willing to present it, even if they didn't necessarily fully agree with it. Because if you want people, the future generations, to engage with our democratic process, to become more politically engaged, then this is an opportunity. Why would you deny them that opportunity? And that's why I think what Cad did there, that's exactly what should be happening, much, much more. And actually, this feeds into the security of democracy. So, you know, right at the beginning, James, you were talking about in my path to being chair of the petitions committee. You know, for many years, I was the Labour Party spokesperson around democracy and elections. And one of the things that really concerns me is about security of democracy and elections. Now, the best way to improve that is to increase voter engagement, to increase participation at elections, to get more people thinking voting makes a difference, more people going out and putting a cross in a box for whichever political party it mm. is. Um, and if you can get engagement from children and from young people in that way, if they grow up to be voters, that strengthens our democracy for generations to come. And our democracy is fragile and precious. So that's why, for me, the Petitions Committee is, is genuinely, hand on heart, the best. And as of interest with the petitions committee, obviously you're an MP and you have your parliamentary staff. What support do you get with the day-to-day -day running of a committee? Uh, is that provided from the House of Commons? Is it yeah. you have to bring people in? Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of quite new to it, Jonathan, but um, there, there are clerks on the committee that support me as chair to sort of you know, help you know, we keep across all the different issues because as well as being chair of the petitions committee, I'm also the member of parliament for Lancaster and Fleetwood. I've still got to do my surgeries. I've still got to pick up the casework. I've still got to do all that kind of stuff as well. 
So you do get extra support from the House of Commons to be able to sort of manage the committee, make sure that we've got debates scheduled and manage a lot of those relationships. And of course, if I'm not mistaken, there's this thing that some people may hear occasionally in the news, this thing called the Liaison Committee, mm. which is when all the chairs of all the committees grill the Prime Minister yeah. in a select committee style. I haven't done meeting. that yet. <laughs> so so the, as chair of the Petitions, Petitions Committee, you're entitled to I'm sit entitled there as well. I'm entitled to do that, yeah. So I've, I've only been to one meeting of the Liaison Committee um, so far, and uh, that was on the day I was elected as chair of the Petitions Committee. I'd been elected, and then I went back to my office to think, oh my goodness, what do I do next? And then my diary like had that thing where it pops up an outlook going, your liaison committee meeting is happening now in whichever room it was. And I sort of went, ah, oh, really? <laughs> dropped the everything. heads of the families. We could, you know, we could get the heads of the families <laughs> coming so. together. It is yeah. a bit like that, isn't it? Um, but yeah, the prime minister is before the, the liaison committee next month. So, so I don't know. I don't know yet. So it, it, they take a selection. So it's um, not every uh, chair of a select committee who gets to grill the prime minister. It's sort of a selection of. So I don't know how they even do that selection. I'll have to report ooh, back on another podcast. We would love to know. Share with um, the pod after. Yeah. What, what question would you ask the prime minister? Do you know? Oh my goodness, where do you even begin? Um, Let's start. Yeah. I think I'd probably wait till close to the time and see what okay. what we sort of like top of the news. Of the, you know, I mean, it's a lot of the select committees. They are kind of like about a government department. So yeah. your question would be about that government department. The issue with the petitions committee is that everything, everything like mm. applies. And therefore, I think I probably would be looking to see what was the sort of big public issue. I'd be kind of almost questioning from the point of view of the public rather than a departmental question. Yeah. Mm. Last question. If you look at the petitions that you see coming in that have the most support, and then you look over in the Commons main chamber, how much do you think politicians talk about what people really care about? Like, is there... On the whole, does it balance out? Do you think people, you know, broadly they are reflecting those issues? Or do you think there's something, you know, maybe like the environment, animal welfare, that doesn't quite get the attention that the public have on it? Oh, gosh, that is a very good question. Um, I mean, you're probably right to say that, you know, the issues that get talked about the most by the public probably are not talked about in the same proportion by MPs. But sometimes as an MP, we'll be talking about something that is very uh, niche. It might not affect that many people and it might be, but it's very important to those people. So for instance, you know, I've been a long time campaigner for the victims of sodium valproate. Now, in terms of like the proportion of the public that are affected by this, mm. it's tiny. But for those who are affected, it is huge as an issue. Cool. So, so you think, well, that's never going to be the number one e-petition, mm. but doesn't mean to say I shouldn't be talking about it a lot as an MP. Of course. So I suppose it's that balancing act. That is, I think that's the whole balancing act of an MP though as well, which is represent your constituents, represent your own views, issues that in fact, if you didn't get involved in, no one would even pay attention to. Is mm. that, that's a continual balance. I'd say so. For the yeah. whole of politics. Perhaps. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I've been banging on about sodium valproate for eight years, but we have moved the campaign forward and I am like a dog with a bone on this one. I think for me, mm. uh, from what I've seen with politics, it's a win big like what Kat's doing it is it is basically tenacity it's about how long you're prepared to keep banging on sometimes repeating the same question because you've got now a new minister and maybe that new minister will make that more of a priority than the previous mm. one but also just keeping it fresh in the department and minister's mind that this is important and there needs to be an answer and it's amazing actually how quickly colleagues start to associate those issues with uh, different members of parliament if they know them regularly and in fact it can help you when it comes to being called in as a debate by the speaker in the chamber, because if you're someone who's a long-term advocate or uh, a passionate about the issue, 
you will normally, if you even if you've spoken loads, you more normally will get bumped up to get more speaking time because the respect from the house is there that you're an expert because you've shown consistent engagement on that issue with that department or across government, whatever it may be. Um, I think that your question was great. Do I think there's enough correlation? Not as much as I think there should be. Mm. I don't know as much as I think there should be. I think the government will, of course, have access to information and have big global things that, or big national things that are happening, which means that they have to react. And some of that legislation is very detailed, legally challenging. I think you know, if we talk about the, the boats and uh, example, that legislation is very detailed, lots of legal different opinions. So a lot of time parliamentary-wise will be given to that. But I think there's definitely an argument on the environment side of things. I think actually sort of post-2019 and once essentially net zero was kind of passed into law, I think it has died off for what we see in the Commons Chamber. Mm. But clearly it's so passionate that we see it regularly raised in Westminster Hall through petitions and through other colleagues submitting those type of debates. The Environment Agency spoken about an awful lot. Uh, the input like fur trade. Uh, uh, sewage. So I think these are all these are all legitimate debates that I don't think the public are sadly seeing probably enough of in the chamber. And I think it is only and when it is happening, it's sort of more small reactionary statements, UQs, and then maybe a small piece of legislation that's sort of rammed through quite quickly to to try and claim credit for something having been done. I think that's I, I think that probably doesn't help build mm. that relationship with the public enough and Westminster, which is always hard to do and never gonna be perfect. But as Kat says, if we're going to really improve democracy, then the public need to feel that their elected representatives, their government, their opposition, which holds the government to account, is actually talking about the things they're talking about on their high streets in their homes. Last question. Do you think there's any way in which the committee and its powers could be strengthened? We, we touched on early on, you know, maybe some departments don't always play ball as the way they should with the petitions committee. It, would you, I don't know if you feel you can call for it, but do you think is there any way in which it could be strengthened to hold the departments to to more accountability? I mean, there's always ways to improve. Um, obviously, it's quite a new in terms of Westminster. It's kind of still quite a new committee. Mm. And I think that in many ways, it's about establishing and bedding in and, you know, being an immovable piece of furniture in that Westminster chamber. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say that how it is today should be how it is in 10 years time. And we should always be looking to further improve but the basis for which we improve needs to be how does the public how does someone who is not an mp get a better deal out of this that's brilliant thank you so much i think the big message i mean that certainly that i've taken out today is i think if you're involved in any campaign and you're looking at westminster and you're not uh, trying to launch a petition either e-petitions or with your local mp you're clearly 100 percent missing out so anyone listening, and I'm sure there will be people listening that are involved in various campaigns, environmental, health, and so on, uh, they should be getting on their... Go to the parliamentary website, right? Stop Absolutely. Petition. Thank you so much, Kat, and we loved having you on. And of course, thank you all to you who are tuning in and listening. You can carry on listening to us by making sure you hit that subscribe button on whatever it is or however it is you listen to this great Inside Whitehall podcast with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter as well at Whitehall Pod UK. So please make sure you give us a follow, share your views, share your thoughts, give us a rating. We want to know what you're thinking. Big thank you to Kat again.